although people have been forecasting the weather for millennia, uh, their, their forecasts were based largely on weather law rather than on the laws of physics. And what marked the turning point just over 100 years ago was really the first serious effort to sit down and to express the problem of weather forecasting in terms of the laws of physics. My name is Ian Ralston. Uh, I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of Surrey in England. Uh, I've been at the university for eight years, and prior to that, I spent 15 years working at the uh, UK Met Office, which is the main weather forecasting centre uh, for, um, for forecasting in, in the UK. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. As you heard at the top of the show, our guest today is Dr. Ian Rolston. Dr. Rolston is a professor at the University of Surrey, and along with Dr. John Norbury, the author of the new book from the Princeton University Press, Invisible in the Storm, The Role of Mathematics in Understanding Weather. Invisible in the Storm is a wonderfully readable book about the history of mathematics and weather forecasting. But, somewhat surprisingly, a fair portion of the book isn't about the weather or even about mathematics. It's about schools of fish and butterflies and whirling vortices. <laughs> and it's about astronomy. That's right. Here's Dr. Rolston talking about why 19th century scholars began applying physics and scientific principles to weather prediction. A lot of the sort of the push to um, establish weather forecasting as, as the practitioners at the time called it an exact science actually came from astronomy, <clears throat> because by the mid-19th century, astronomers were predicting the return of comets, they were predicting the phases of the moon, the tides and everything, and all this information was uh, tabulated in almanacs, and of course it was very useful for working people. And this was done on the basis of calculation, so they knew Newton's laws of motion, the new uh, Newton's law of gravitation, and from observations of the current position of the planets, they could work out the future positions with, you know, considerable accuracy. So, of course, at one point, somebody thought, well, if we can do it for the planets and the solar system, why can't we do it for weather? So that's really how it all started. Um, and actually, if you read some of the early papers where people were trying to uh, explain their ideas, they made reference to what the astronomers were doing, and actually alluded to the fact that what they really wanted to do was to have an annual weather almanac so that everybody could just look at the 17th of September and work out what it was going to be doing in their part, part of the country on that day. That was the original vision. But of course, what's different, one, one of the major differences between what the astronomers were doing and what the uh, weather forecasters have, have to do really lies in the complexity of the mathematics involved. And it wasn't long before, of course, people realized that the, the problem of calculating the weather using the laws of physics was a problem of almost immeasurable complexity. So our book really starts by relating 
this aspect of the story and then moves forward by how people carried the science from that point on. As Dr. Rolston notes, humans have wanted to know tomorrow's weather for millennia. And they've tried to guess the weather for just about as many years. Yeah, I grew up in a household that purchased a farmer's almanac every year. And not just any farmer's almanac, the old farmer's almanac, the one published continuously in the U.S. since 1792. (laughs) It contains recipes, articles, planting charts, moon phases, and, of course, predictions about the weather. Here's what the almanac says for the Midwestern U.S. for the week of March 18th. Showers, then sunny, warm. That actually isn't too far off from current weather predictions. No, it's not. Right now, as we're recording this broadcast, the current expectations for the week of March 18th in Chicago are rain and snow showers early in the week, followed by above-freezing temperatures with additional rain and snow showers coming later in the week. So the old farmer's almanac got it right. Well, kind of. (laughs) The temperatures expected throughout the week of the 18th are actually a little below average and not, as the old farmer's almanac says, on the warm side of things. And the rain showers predicted by the old farmer's almanac. There's no mention of the snow we might be getting, and beyond that, Mm. predicting precipitation in the northern U.S. in March isn't really going out on a limb. (laughs) And there are weeks, even entire months, that almanacs like the old farmer's almanac get entirely wrong. But today, people buy almanacs for the articles and for reference material and for their old-timey feel. (laughs) Also, the nice thin pages. They don't generally buy almanacs for their weather forecasts because we have better and more accurate substitutes. Substitutes based on more than a century of problem-solving and mathematical innovation applied to weather. Dr. Wollstone's book starts with a wonderfully evocative image of Wilhelm Berkness sitting in a chair by the fire and watching the smoke curl up the chimney. Here's Dr. Wollstone to tell us a little about Dr. Berkness and his work. Wilhelm Berkness was uh, started his scientific career working with his father, Carl Anton Bjorkness, and they were interested in a problem in physics that was quite fashionable um, in the middle of the 19th century. And that was the problem of describing really how light propagates through space, through apparently empty space. And because people were drawing analogies with how sound waves um, propagate through the air, how waves on water uh, can, can obviously be seen and affect, say, say, the motion of boats that are moored you know, against the bank of a river or something. People actually thought that empty space must actually be filled with some sort of invisible medium, which they called the ether. And the problem then became is how do you demonstrate the existence of the ether? So this is what uh, the Bjorkness family team were involved with. Now, they started out by trying to replicate um, phenomena that you see in magnetism, such as when objects are attracted or repelled from each other, by doing experiments using um, objects immersed in water and setting them spinning, either rotating the same way or contra-rotating, and they could see how this replicated some of the effects of magnetism. And of course, being scientists, they wanted to quantify their ideas, and so they turned to some of the latest developments in the physics of hydrodynamics, which was being led very much at that time by uh, William Thomson, Lord Kelvin. And here, Kelvin had uh, derived a result, a quite remarkable result, that calculated um, the, 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 the strength of swirl in the fluid um, by expressing it as something called circulation, and he could work out 
how circulation changed with time. Now, this was a very important result that the Bjergner's team needed to use, but they quickly ran into trouble. And what they found is, is that, contrary to Kelvin's theory, uh, circulation might actually vary, um, especially if pressure and temperature varied within the fluid. And this, this was beyond the scope of what Kelvin had done. So their first breakthrough was to really extend Kelvin's work to account for this interplay between pressure and temperature in a fluid. But about the time they were making this progress, actually, uh, the proponents of the theory of the ether were beginning to really lose faith with that theory. And it wasn't long, indeed, the turn of the 20th century before Einstein's theory of relativity and the new theory of quantum mechanics replaced the need for an ether theory altogether. And so the young Björkness was actually sort of faced with this um, <coughs> rather, rather unfortunate prospect that he had embarked on a career uh, with his father to try to prove the existence of something, and gradually the international physics community were turning their back on this idea. Um, but it wasn't long before he started to talk about some of his ideas to people interested in problems in atmospheric science. And actually, they could see how his uh, work that extended Kelvin's result could actually be, be applied to quite practical problems in weather forecasting. And this is really how he became involved in the subject. So in case you didn't catch that, this mathematical revolution of weather forecasting was started, in part, by a scientist who was working on a now-discredited branch of physics and who was, originally, totally uninterested in weather forecasting. However, the utility of Dr. Bjerknes's work to weather forecasting was immediately apparent. It was also immediately applied to a number of phenomena, some weather-related and some not. He showed how the sea breeze effect uh, you know, the, 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 the effect when, when you get air blowing from land on onto the sea and vice versa between day and night. Uh, in coastal regions, he explained that as a consequence of the circulation theorem. Um, he actually applied it to problems in oceanography. And indeed, there was a case where a fishing community in Scandinavia, uh, very often herring shoals would come into the into the vicinity, and of course the fishermen would be able to catch a lot of fish. And then for some, some unexplained reason, these shoals would disappear, often for months at a time, and nobody knew why. And when they started to measure the, the temperature and the salinity of the water, they realized that the herring shoals tended to follow the warmer water currents. But knowing how these would vary over time was something that was very difficult to predict. Um, Bjerknes' circulation theorem is something that was applied to actually help them with that problem. So it became apparent very quickly that Bjerknes had a, a very practical tool at his disposal uh, for solving problems in, in um, atmospheric sciences. So a scientist working on a now discredited branch of physics didn't just help revolutionize weather forecasting, he also helped predict when and where herring might be caught. I love that detail. <laughs> it is kind of awesome, literally awesome. It's awe-inspiring that in the early 1900s, back before computing had taken off, scientists could somehow work with something as complex as air and liquid circulation and fluid dynamics. Although by the turn of the uh, 20th century, um, we had the equations in place that described 
the atmosphere and the oceans, nobody really knew how to go about solving these equations. And one of the characteristic things about the mathematics of atmosphere and ocean dynamics is that it's not difficult in the way that something like general relativity is difficult, where there, there are a lot of abstract concepts to get your head around before you even start. The concepts are fairly, fairly straightforward. It's all to do with pressure, temperature, the fluid velocity, and so forth. But the mathematics that quantifies that is absolutely fierce. You know, it really does throw up huge obstacles to mathematicians trying to analyze these equations. And this is the problem that the early pioneers ran into very quickly indeed. Now, what um, Bjergnes's result does is it provides almost a shortcut. It provides you a way of doing almost sort of back-of-the-envelope type calculations, which, if you, if you just used explicit calculus, would be perhaps e e even impossible, except in a few very specialized cases. So this was the power of what uh, Bjergnes and, of course, building on what Kelvin had done, is they had a, 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 you know, a means of extracting information from these equations that was very difficult to do using straightforward calculus itself. So the contribution Bjerknes made was that he took a problem that could not be solved without a computer and made it workable. Right. To some extent, the problem prior to Bjerknes was a lack of computational power. But the bigger problem was a lack of mathematical finesse. Mm. Sure, calculus had been invented, but calculus alone couldn't handle problems as complex as fluid dynamics. Something more, some new mathematical techniques or new innovations were needed. And Bjerknes came up with a really powerful innovation. It turns out that innovations like Bjerknes, rather than increases in computational power, are what have driven advancements in weather forecasting. Today, a hundred, over a hundred years on from when it all started, of course, you know, we we have phenomenally powerful supercomputers. We have data that we obtain from satellites, from radar that measure the intensity of precipitation and so forth. So we have almost global co coverage of data. But if you were to just sort of push that data into the supercomputers in some sort of naive way, what you would get out wouldn't even look like a weather forecast. You really need to understand the mathematics that defines the problem in order to get sensible forecasts from the technology that we now have available to us. Dr. Rolston closed that clip talking about how computational power was not enough and how you had to know what to do with all your data. And that is critically important. But before we talk about why this is important, let's have Dr. Rolston explain what sort of data he's talking about. Well, today, the, the, the data comes from all sorts of sources. So there are traditional fixed location weather stations that will measure, say, the accumulation of precipitation. They will measure variations in temperature and humidity. They'll also measure wind speed and direction. Uh, and then there are um, devices that are fitted to many commercial aircraft. They send information to receiving stations about weather data during the course of their flight. The same thing applies to shipping as well. Um, then I've mentioned weather, ra uh, weather radar. These are conventional radar designed to uh, track and help us uh, understand where it's raining most heavily. 
And then also there are the space-borne, satellite-borne instruments, which obviously tell us a lot about the structure of clouds, humidity, and temperature throughout the atmosphere. So all these different sources of data are involved in providing input into the forecasting process. So weather forecasters are collecting data from the ground, from the atmosphere, and from satellites. They're collecting data on sunlight, rain, humidity, wind speed, and any number of other features. And then they're putting all that into forecasting models in an effort to predict the weather. And if you don't know what you're doing, that could be like asking a computer what the average is between 12 oranges, 5 apples, and 46 bananas. So think about that. There's no way to average that. At least there's no easy and obvious way to average that. Do you just count up the total number of pieces of food and divide by three? Or do you average the luminosity of the skins of each piece of food? Do you average the color composition of each piece of fruit? Do you average the tastiness of each piece of fruit? In, in which case, bananas would easily win. Really? I, I would have gone with, with oranges. Definitely bananas. But the point is, you can't just average something like that. Just like you can't throw data from a million different sources on a million different topics through one simple filter and get an intelligible result. Instead, you need to have a framework for dealing with all that data. And developing that framework, developing the mathematical tools necessary for handling all that data, has been essential for our ability to predict both the weather and climate, going all the way back to Wilhelm Bjerknes's work on fluid dynamics. The process of developing the mathematical framework and integrating all of this data is known as data assimilation. And data assimilation is not just useful for predicting the weather. Well, data assimilation itself, uh, can be applied to a, you know, it's got a variety of app applications. You can uh, apply it to, say, um, looking for minerals, oil exploration. Um, it's actually applied a lot in medical sciences um, in terms of um, the sort of scanning equipment. Mathematicians um, call these, uh, this general class of problem, an inverse problem. And what you're trying to do uh, in an inverse problem is to determine um, the cause from the effect, okay? So in terms of, say, a medical scan, what you may see is some image, maybe 3D image, of what's happening inside somebody's body. Um, and that is the, the output, the effect of obviously directing radiation or whatever through the body. What you've then got to do is to determine what caused that signal, that image, to be received. So it's determining um, cause from effect. And this is precisely the same sort of thing we have to do in weather prediction, and that is that uh, if you, say, monitor uh, a cloud pattern from a satellite, over a period of time, and let's suppose that you compare what you're actually seeing with what the forecast is producing. If you see a discrepancy, and of course what you want to do is to try to correct your forecast, you've got to correct the forecast in such a way that um, it, it, it will alter the causes to produce the required effect. So earlier you heard about Wilhelm Bjerknes, a physicist who came up with a clever way to facilitate a relatively easy solution to a very complex mathematical problem. 
And then this solution was applied to weather prediction and any number of other problems, including herring fishing. Including herring fishing.、Mm-hmm. And now, in modern-day weather forecasting, mathematical techniques developed for weather forecasting are being used in medical imaging and mineral exploration. <laughs> However, advances made in weather forecasting do not just benefit other fields. Other fields are providing advancement useful for weather forecasting as well. So it goes both ways. Throughout the book, we we, we do. Continually relate to instances where developments in other areas of science have helped、uh, weather forecasters and vice versa. And、uh, this sort of thing, of course, is is very important for continuing scientific research and development.、Um, so at, at the moment,、um, there's actually quite a lot of money, primarily government money, that's going in to help. Scientists、uh, deal with certain problems、uh, associated with changing climate and how we simulate that, how how we predict it, and how we use that information.、Um, but we're often drawing on the expertise of mathematicians who, up until recent times, have been working in various, in quite different areas,、uh, in particular in fire finance,、uh, in other areas related to engineering. And the expertise that they're bringing from those areas are now finding use in 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 the environmental problems. If you didn't before this episode make the connection between things like finance and weather forecasting, don't feel ashamed. That's right. After all, this was Dr. Rolston's response when we asked him whether he had always appreciated the cross applicability of mathematics from different fields.、Um, no, no. Uh, to, to, to be absolutely honest,、um, I guess the the idea for writing the book、uh, sort of emerged、um, when I actually found myself、uh, starting to apply ideas in weather forecasting、uh, from areas of mathematics that I hadn't studied since I was a graduate student, and I did my graduate studies in general relativity. And I started to find that some of the mathematics that, 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 that I learnt then, I was finding useful to solve some quite specialised problems、uh, in fluid mechanics, and that just started to get me thinking a little bit about、um, this,、uh, you know, transformation, this,、uh, this exchange of ideas between different fields, and then. A, uh, a a new graduate level textbook was published、um, on the mathematical underpinnings of weather and climate modelling, and just flipping through this book, I mean, it's full of really quite sophisticated mathematical ideas, and so it just dawned on me that, that there's really quite an interesting sort of story to, to, to be told about why we're using this real state-of-the-art mathematics now. Um, in such an everyday problem, I think that's the fascinating thing. Making people aware of the many important roles mathematics plays in our everyday lives is among the reasons Dr. Rolston wrote this book. It is not, however, the only reason Dr. Rolston wrote this book. I wrote this book because I think there's a really exciting story.、Um, If if one can ever imagine that maths can be exciting, I think, think it is. I think there's a really exciting and important story as to why we've got a very solid scientific foundation to the weather and climate problem. And I think this is something that 
is relatively little known, known about. People know, know that we observe the atmosphere from space. People know that weather forecasting bureaus have massive supercomputers that crunch all these numbers. But very few people know um, about the mathematical underpinnings that really drives the whole thing and indeed makes the whole thing possible. And one of the, uh, in fact, the way that I actually got interested in science was as a teenager, I read a book by Isaac Asimov. It was called The Collapsing Universe, The Story of Black Holes. Uh, so it was, it was one of Asimov's you know, factual science books, and it was written at a level that somebody with high school physics could follow. And I was absolutely captivated by this story, which was really the story of, of matter and how it exists and how it can ultimately end up as a black hole. And, of course, this got me interested in, in mathematics and led me into science. And in some ways, there's a very similar story uh, there to be told about the weather and climate prediction problem. And I would hope that one of the things that comes out of uh, my, my, my book is that if other young people read it and are interested in it, they too will move into science. So my real motivation for writing a book such as this is, of course, to hopefully uh, raise interest, raise awareness in, it, in others, and hopefully bring more people into science. Isaac Asimov's Collapsing Universe is also the exact book that got me interested in science. I still have a dog-eared paperback copy on my bookshelf at home. I never really had a book or anything like that. There was no moment in my childhood where I was like, I want to be a scientist. So, so teenage <laughs> Joanna could have used a book like Collapsing Universe or Invisible in the Storm. Or maybe more sci-fi or Star Trek, although I don't know how I would have managed to fit in more sci-fi. And you became a scientist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but whatever the medium, there can never be too many works intended to interest people in science. There's a lot in this book that is surprisingly obvious in hindsight, but invisible to most of us who have never really thought about the topic before. We'll close with one of those examples. Here's Dr. Rolston discussing his favorite anecdote from the book, Invisible in the Storm, The Role of Mathematics in Understanding Weather. It's, it's actually one that I, that, that I took from um, a, a lecture that I saw on television given by the American physicist Richard Feynman. Uh, of course, who died several years ago now. Uh, but Feynman won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1965. And uh, there's this video of him uh, giving a lecture to science graduates. Uh, and obviously, these are people from various different areas of science, so it's not just mathematics or physics. And he's explaining um, how he, he, he had a discussion one day uh, with a non-scientific audience uh, about the general principles of science. And, of course, one of the things that was very topical uh, at the time was whether or not unidentified flying objects exist. And so it wasn't long before somebody in this audience was starting to press Feynman for an sort of unequivocal answer as to whether he believed in UFOs. And eventually Feynman turned around and said, look, um, it's not clear to me that there's sufficient evidence for the existence of UFOs. And his antagonist re re replied, so, sorry, his antagonist replied and said, well, if you can't prove that UFOs don't exist, then you're not a very good scientist. And Feynman paused and he said, now, this is just plain wrong. He said, science is not always about proving absolute truths, being able to say 
what is more likely or less likely in science is being truly scientific. And to make his point clear, he finally said, look, he said, I think it more likely that the reports of UFOs are due to the known irrational characteristics of terrestrial intelligence rather than to the unknown rational efforts of extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, I think that's quite a beautiful thing, but it does bring home a very important point in the context of weather and climate prediction. Uh, because we all know about uh, climate skeptics, and there is a lot of uncertainty out there. And, of course, people are always pressing for an unequivocal yes or no. Is this going to happen, or is it not going to happen? And we're now very firmly in an era, not only with weather prediction, but with the climate issue as well, of having to live with information that's given to us in terms of probabilities. Now, this does not mean to say that the scientists are guessing or are in some sense unsure. They have to do this because actually um, that's the way the mathematics is. And this is one of the things we explain in our book. And in fact, if you were to try to be more precise, then in some sense you're ignoring one of the important lessons that science is telling you about the nature of your problem. So I think, you know, I think this, this quote from Feynman is a great one, and it does bring it home that, you know, science is something where you're always trying to weigh the body of evidence and look at the most likely explanation for something, and that's certainly relevant and very important today in the issue of weather and climate prediction. That is all from our interview with Dr. Ian Rolston, professor of mathematics at the University of Surrey and author of the book, Invisible in the Storm, The Role of Mathematics in Understanding Weather. If you're interested in hearing more from the Grok Science Show, you can friend or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. You can also download archived episodes from iTunes, archive.org, the Public Radio Exchange, and our own website, groks.net. For this edition of the Grok Science Show, and for Charles Lee and Frank Ling, I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Keep on grokking.